people will pitch us a lot of parenting angles and we're not parenting we are lifestyle I'm not saying I don't care about my son I do he's the (laughs) he's the love of my life but I also care about my dogs and I also care about my house and I also care about my fashion those things don't go away but just because you've had a child Hello and welcome to Media Voices. If you don't know us, we take a weekly look at everything that's going on in the media world, from the news to the views, and my God, there has been quite a few of them this week. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And that clip you just heard was from my chat with Sophia Waterfield, editor and founder of Paranting Magazine. It's a magazine for parents, but for parents who don't have time for the aspirational bullshit that some of our glossy lifestyle magazines cover uh, we spoke about the name we spoke about how she funded the startup she's on issue four um with the aim of actually paying freelancers for a concept mm. and we also spoke about accents because she has one as much as i have one but ahead of that though we're going to be talking about my favorite thing word games because the new york times has acquired wordle do either of you play do either of you dabble yeah, I do. Okay, yeah. I don't share my results. Jesus, that is just the biggest <laughs> dick move ever. Um, but yeah, for those of you who don't know, it is a word game, five by six grid. You have to guess the word uh, through a process of elimination and clever guessing in six guesses or fewer. It's sort of like Hangman, um, really, isn't it? Kind of like Hangman, yeah. But the NYT acquired it for something in the low seven figures. And it effectively, as many people pointed out, continues that shift of the NYT from a news-centric business to an attention business more widely. So Will Shorts, who's the editor of the NYT Crossword... Best name ever. <laughs> ...said, what's nice about Wordle is how simple, pleasant, and attractive the computer interface is. It is effectively a digital native game. He said, it's a great puzzle and it doesn't take too long to play, which makes it perfect for our age when people have short attention spans. I disagree with that. But as our old boss, Neil Thackeray, noted... This is actually a shift back to more traditional publishing strats. So he said, delete the crossword and you're toast. That's always <laughs> been true. 20 years ago, Puzzler Media, which sold Sudoku to newspapers, sold for over £120 million. Puzzles are worth more than news. And ultimately, you know, great for James Wardle, who created it. That's fantastic. I think he did it for his wife, just kind of in, in his spare time, and he sold it for something in the low seven figures. But... In light of what I think Esther's about to talk about, we do need to have a chat about the NYT more widely, but its impact on the journalism economy more widely, because I think we're seeing the collateral damage of its success elsewhere. Before we get all dark and dreary about the future of journalism, there's actually some other good news for the NYT, isn't there? Oh, I wasn't going to get dark and dreary, but sure, <laughs> I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll peg this before you to go down that slope. Um, so yeah, they, they also announced this week um, they've hit their goal of 10 million subscribers um, a couple of years early. Um, they originally hoping to do that, I think, by 2020. Was it 2023 they were hoping to do that yeah, by? I think so, yeah, and they've shifted that. So they've now said, million. okay, we're going to get yeah, 15 million by 2025, I think is their next one. Um, obviously, <laughs> the athletic acquisition kind of supercharged that little bit. Well, they sort of happily gained 1.2 million subscribers. So you, say, you say supercharged? I say game the system. <laughs> yeah. Do you know? The grift paid off. Yeah. Did it? Did anyone else feel like, because we've been massive, everyone has, but we've been massive cheerleaders for the New York Times and what they've done over the last however long we've been doing this stupid podcast. Um, 
and all of a sudden this kind of felt like they'd cheated a little bit. Uh, yeah, they paid Why? somebody to carry them across the finish line. <laughs> yeah, they, exactly. It felt like they'd kind of, if it was a school long distance run, they'd sort of take the shortcut in behind the shops and come out further up the course than anyone else. Is wow. this not a smart acquisition? This is showing initiative. I see. <laughs> that's that's the point. School. Is it a smart acquisition? The value of a subscriber has never been less yeah, clear. Exactly. So I don't. I think what the Athletic did is they, they went really, really deep into sports. You know, they hired all the best sport writers. Like what they did for sports coverage, and and, and I was really excited for what they were doing at the time until it became evident over the last two years it was just a <laughs> subscriber play. Yeah. Um, but actually, what what they're doing, what they built, was good. And the MIT, whereas you know, it's got news, it's got sport. It didn't have that depth that the Athletic had. So if they can keep that. You know, they might decide to do it as a separate product where, you know, if you're just interested in sport, a bit like sort of cable TV and all that, you can just get the sports package. I thought this was a really smart acquisition. You need to go and back to the And you've then got those dedicated subscribers. It's like I'm bundling all over again. You need to go back to the beginning of that little scenario they just, you, they just described. They spent all this money creating admittedly great content to get subscribers they didn't make any money. <laughs> had right, th- th- this is where I think had the <laughs> pandemic not hit and shut sports oh, down entirely. No but I, I, th- I think we expect too much from new businesses too what, soon. Like yeah. Profitability. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think. Should things, we take a look at our own books there? <laughs> businesses like this, yeah, I, th- I think it's, you, you almost need like a five to seven lead time to a five to seven year lead time to give them time to be profitable. It takes time to build an audience. It takes time to to get to that inflection point where yeah, you've you're got preaching to the choir. To you need to be talking to the venture capitalists, not to us. Why? Why do you sound like you're disagreeing with me then? <laughs> Something changed in the athletic, a pandemic aside, around that time where they said, "Yeah, do you know what? Actually, we're impatient. We're not gonna, we're not gonna wait this out." Yeah, their initial strategy of throwing all the money to getting the best people, getting the all the headlines, all the all the best writers, all the best interviewers, that was doing really, really well for them with the subscribers they were picking up. And then they they almost said, "Yeah, do you know what? We want to exit. What's the quickest way we can get out of this?" And they then, you know, they're doing like all the free bundles with T-Mobile and all that sort of thing. And that's the point that they almost sort of lost the plot a bit. Peter, when you said, let's go back to the start of this, I thought you were talking about them coming out with the explicit intention of bleeding local newspapers dry of their talent, which I think bleed them dry is an actual quote. Because my point, Dark and Dreary, quote about, point about the MIT before is, it's having a negative impact on the rest yeah. of the news ecosystem by dint uh, of its success. And this athletic acquisition and, helps and also spur I, that. I, I think, I mean, the, the word, the the... Compare and contrast Wordzel with The Athletic is brilliant. It's mm. just brilliant. There's a guy sat in his house. He's a clever, clever guy. He makes a puzzle. All of his energy goes into that. It takes off. He gets this viral success based purely on his own smarts. And he makes a million quid or a million dollars or whatever it is. That's very different from... Going to venture capitalists, taking a bunch of money, using that to hire, to basically asset strip mm. local publishers, and then exiting as quick as you possibly can with a with a subscriber count that's based on what you know. Look at what Nick Thompson said a couple of weeks ago in the Press Gazette about the uh, Atlantic subscriber strategy. Mm. It's all about value. It's all about subscriber value. How much money is this person 
bringing to us and how much are we worth to that person? I would love to know what the average ARPU is now for an, uh, for an NYT subscriber. Oh. Uh, Esther, beforehand, you were talking about, uh, you were breaking down the relative Break proportion of new subscribers to kind of other subscribers in the NYT, and you came up with some interesting yeah, I, I was I was like one of those apprentice candidates when they're like, "How can you not know the maths for this?" Why I hate doing this kind of maths. Um, so, so yeah, the, the MIT did actually release some stats around um, around this this latest milestone, ten million subscriptions. Um, they added three hundred seventy five thousand digital subscriptions in the last three months of twenty twenty one. I assume that's not including the athletic acquisition because that's only just completed. Fifty five percent of those new signups were not to the news product. Mm. It was to their cooking, the crosswords, the product recommendation site, Wirecut, which I think they've done some new stuff around, and Auden, which is like their audio journalism um, product. And to me, I thought that's that's an awful lot of new signups, not to new stuff. Is is that going to be how they can look to grow from now on primarily, just yeah. by adding sort of all these extra things just to – But I, what, I, are they looking to become a subscription those, business, not in news business? But the point is, it's not just news, is it? It's what was it? what did you call it, Chris? I thought that was quite good. Attention based. Yeah, mm. it's not a mix of six. Though it's all subscriptions. It's just subscriptions yeah, to different things. Right. Yeah, but it's different kinds of products. I mean, the other thing I did go and look at the um, the, the times they released their, their numbers as a whole. So although they've got they've had quite a, a um, ballooning of new signups to not new stuff, they do still have. It's about sixty seven percent of their current subscriptions are current 8.8 million this is before the athletic one yeah. um are to are to the digital news product um but that still means there's a there's a whole two million plus other subscriptions to the other digital products um and then there's like a small amount for the print which i assume but yeah it's a separate it's a separation i find very very strange that was that's and that's always been the challenge with digital mm-hmm. publishing is you can end up with very very fragmented separate audiences for different parts of your offering but it's not necessarily a problem, is it? If they are, adding it's not that necessarily many a problem, except Christopher. Mm-hmm. The money that used to be spent on a newspaper and the advertising in that newspaper funded everything. Mm. And then when you've got the crazy ass rapacious capitalist bean counters sat <laughs> looking at their spreadsheets and thinking, wait a minute, profitability on this Wordle game or this crossword or all these games is three times higher than in our journalism the journalism <laughs> let's focus on crosswords but but we had this conversation at our media moments 2020 special launch where i asked the question which i've asked many times which is when does a publisher stop becoming a publisher is it when they're selling cars is it when they're making puzzles is it when they've actually got a massive cro- uh, cooking library and you you turned around and you said it doesn't matter <laughs> Well, it doesn't matter, but there is a threat to Chris's original point here. There is a threat to journalism. It's it's an interesting situation to find ourselves in where we can be rooting for these companies individually, and yet we have to kind of take a step back and say, well, what's this going to do to the local news sites in the US in particular who can't compete on price or in terms of you know what they're actually getting out of these subscriptions? Mm-hmm. You, they yeah, have I, to double down on that local aspect. And yet research, I think it was from the Reuters Institute, showed that even in those local areas, what people value from subscriptions is national stories in a lot of cases, which they cannot cover with the same granularity or detail as the NYT. I find it very weird because, you know, we've been a booster for the NYT for a long time. 
And then I, and I found myself kind of, I, I, I was having these like negative feelings for the first you, time. <laughs> it sort of became, it went from the kind of the plucky upstart, which yeah. it never really was to the empire. You know, you start hearing the dun, 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 dun. Can we please move on to news in brief? Yes, please. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh this isn't going to be any less true. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm, I'm actually, um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm losing my um, happy eyes now. Because <laughs> the news in brief, um, my choice is that the UK and Canada are both lining up to copy Australia's legislation, which we've spoken about many times on this podcast, that allows newspapers and publishers to negotiate with Google and Facebook for, for, for linking to their stories. So because this is only a news in brief, I'm going to rein it in. I'm going to hold off my <laughs> rant about why this is a terrible piece of legislation and an even worse idea for the UK to copy it. Don't do it, Nadine Doris. Um, instead, <laughs> you said that in, one, Nadine Doris. <laughs> um, instead, I'm going to direct you uh, on our website, voices.media. We'll put this in the show notes. There is a superb takedown mm. by Neiman Labs' Joshua Benton, perfect, who yeah. does this brilliant rant about exactly why trying to force tech giants to pay for linking to stuff is absolutely batty. Except Emily Bell, who also says that Josh Benton piece is really good, by the way. Uh, offers a devil's avocado approach mm, to this. Ding. Oh, and it's the thread that I've I'll link to the thread which in the notes. But the thread that she's got is basically saying yes, it is a crappy piece of legislation. I, even worse because the Australian government has made a pig's ear of implementing it. Yep. But she does say regulatory pressure is more effective in shifting corporate funding into journalism than an absence of regulatory pressure. They still managed to strike all these deals with News Corp and basically yeah. cut loads of smaller publishers Nobody out. So, that, yeah. but the, so the threat and, of regulatory and, pressure is great, but the actual, it, has to, it has to be implemented properly. And that's exactly what Emily Bell says in this thread, that um, the, she gets into it about the Australian government and how it's a stitch-up and all the rest of it. It is a stitch-up. Hey, and, and speaking of the, the, the source of the problem, the, it's been the, a busy all week scale. for News Corp. <laughs> hey, Chris is trying to rescue his head. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, busy all week for News Corp. A number of academics from Australian universities are questioning its type with the Digital News Academy, which it's formed in cooperation with Google, on the basis that it is an incursion of a high-profile and controversial media company into the higher education sector, and the extent to which that is then funded by the uh, large and disruptive digital search company. It's it's effectively the micro problem compared to exactly what we were just talking about. Is this slightly seedy tie-up between Google and News Corp in a way that only benefits the two of them. Then, News Corp was the subject of a hack from China, which puts the identity of some of its confidential sources at risk. And finally, it announced its results, demonstrating a 30% increase in revenue as digital subscriptions grow. We could have done an entire discussion purely on the back of those results. I I did think it was funny that that they were complaining about being hacked, given some past behaviours. <laughs> I didn't even think about that, yeah. <laughs> uh, I wasn't completely shocked or even saddened, actually, to see that the company formerly known as Facebook has lost some users. For the first time in its 18-year history, uh, its user count, actual, active user count actually went down. And off the back of that, its stock crashed 26%. Its market value is down more than $230 billion, which I believe, I think I heard on the radio, was more than Estonia's GDP. It lost more than a country's GDP in 24 hours. 
He's also apparently announced another pivot to video. Yeah, that's yeah, and I don't know what I haven't even read that because I just can't don't know. I just can't. What did surprise me with this was some of the reaction. Uh there's a tweet from Jeff Jarvis who said, I bet within two to four years, folk will be laughing. Or remember when we thought Facebook was a threat to democracy and society? How ridiculous it was. Remember MySpace Fredster, Altavista and Prodigy. Oh, weren't we silly? That, that's, that's a bad take. That's a bad take, isn't it? And I think yeah, it's also that the sheer number of people using Facebook, that's not just going to, like, yes, you know, they, they've had a dent in their user growth and it's good to see that they're not infallible for once. You know, even if, even if sort of usage drops off in the West, it's yeah. absolutely massive in other yeah. countries. And we, yeah, that, that, that's such like a Western yeah. perspective of it. Oh, that's it. I'm Facebook's totally. dead now. And well, it's like, it's no, it's, a, I think it's actually a very US perspective, to be honest. I don't, because I think, you know, we're not perfect over here, but I think we have a slightly more international view of things. It's a long way to fall. And yeah, face, Facebook have been looking at shoring up their Instagram growth, their WhatsApp growth, which is still phenomenal. Um, they're, yeah, they're, they're a long way from over, as much as I'd love them to be. This week's guest is editor and founder of Paranting Magazine, Sophia Waterfield. She's on issue four of the Independent Magazine for Parents. We spoke about representing real-world parenting, where the name came from, and how she's been funding the magazine. But first we spoke about Sophia's background. Uh, well, so I've been a writer since I was 15. Um, my first published work was in the East Riding Gazette, which is my really like mini local, micro local paper at the time. I don't even know if it's still going, to be honest. Um, and it, I basically did book reviews and I still have the book that I was given as payment for that piece. I've kind of flickered in and out of journalism. I went to university to do a um, BJTC accredited course at Farnham uh, University, the Creative Arts. I graduated in the recession. So 2010, the year after like it really kicked yeah. off. So I went into PR. I got my first job via the amazing Mike Butcher of TechCrunch. Then I did a year, 18 months, interning and building up my experience while working part-time in a betting shop. Went back into PR um, and stayed there for eight years. Had a bit of a, and I've talked quite publicly about this, but I had a really bad mental health crisis in 2017. Um, and I realised that being in an office and agency life just wasn't for me. And um, I went freelance and I started freelancing in PR quickly realized it still wasn't for me and so I transitioned over to journalism again um and I've been freelancing exclusively as a journalist I would say for about three or four years I've had the privilege to work for Newsweek I was a freelance reporter for them for 18 months um I've written for the likes of New Scientist, Wired UK, uh The Sun Online, Mirror Online, Metro, Stylist, you know, and a lot of technology trades as well. I've I've been really privileged to write for some really big names um, and some small names as well, which are just as important. I've got a really varied background, but I think that, you know, being a writer, being a storyteller has always been there since I was 15. 
So today, you've got your own magazine. How do you say the name? I, I pronounce it Parantin. I love the name. I was saying it earlier. I looked at it and I thought, is that a, is that a typo? And then I got it. So talk talk to me about Parantin. Talk, talk to me about how it started and what it is. Well, firstly, with the name, we hear that a lot, that it, uh, it's a typo. Is it a spelling mistake? And I just kind of want to set the record straight and say it's pronounced Parantin. It's purposeful. I'm... You know, the name is a mixture of ranting and parenting. It's basically a discussion that are a rant or just a conversation that only parents understand. Like, and and it really hit me when I was pregnant with my son, which is like nearly four years ago now. Um, I was on a train to London to see my friend from uni. So I was like, favourite thing to do, read magazines I've always loved magazines. That's why I got into journalism. Um, I, I just love them. But one of the things that I really felt on that train was that nothing really spoke to me in those magazines. There was nothing even that looked vaguely functional as a parent, you know, or as somebody that I was like, well, I'm not going to spend 300 quid on an outfit that clearly I'm going to get messed up in like two seconds. The makeup was all right, but again you have to have that disposable income that I just didn't have as a working class pregnant woman. Some of the articles didn't really speak to me and I kind of felt really underwhelmed by these magazines that I once was so in love with. I remember just getting off that train and going to have like coffee and whatever with my friend and I was saying like, there's something missing here. And then obviously then when you become a parent, it's inevitable that everyone assumes that you want to read parenting stuff. I want to read how to be a better parent. I want to read about how my parenting style is terrible and how I can improve it. Or here's where you can buy baby toys or here's where you can buy baby clothes. And it's all very focused on your child and not focused on you. I kind of ummed about stuff for two, three years and then the pandemic hit us and I was still, I was still kind of working, but I wasn't because I had my son so I had to take a bit of time out while still doing the odd bit of work. And I was talking to another journalist, Pierre. It was around like things like relationships and sex and relationships and how there's a lot of, there seems to be a lot of focus around like, oh, how do you keep the spark in your sexual relationships going? And they were just like, well, there's nothing about, from my perspective, how to just explore and be exciting and not just keep the spark going, but that extra next step. It just sparked that in me where I was like, this is still an issue. It's still an issue three years later. I need to do something about this, you know? And I'd left Newsweek. I was hungry to do something that was, that was like making a difference. There's been a lot of discourse and narrative as well around the working class and how we are excluded a lot in journalism, how, how people speak for our class and our issues, and it's not its not even correct. Um, and I was like, this is my opportunity to, to make a difference, and that is how parenting was born. A lot of people will, will pitch us a lot of parenting angles, and we're not parenting, we are lifestyle. And this is what I found when I was pregnant with my son, and when you become a parent, all you care about is your children. 
I'm not saying I don't care about my son, I do. He's the, <laughs> he's the love of my life, do you know what I mean? Also, yeah. But I also care about my dogs and I also care about my house and yeah. I also care about my fashion. Those things don't yeah. go away but just because you've had a child. The only reason they go away is because there's nothing out there, to my mind, that means that you can carry those things on. And that's something that's really behind parenting you know our cover stars have been parents that are creating those those safe spaces you know um lee Undwin is the founder of the style attic she's created her own business she created it out of her own attic hence the name and her clothing is affordable she was a fashion buyer for many many years but she lives in leeds and she's proud to be from there you know and you know, our first cover star was a black midwife who was creating affordable services for parents who couldn't afford a private midwife. And this was in the age of, like, COVID, where midwives wouldn't always see you face to face. And that's what we're about. We are about finding those people that are trying to make real change in the world. Could be through fashion, could be through healthcare, could be through giving the disabled a voice, could be through activism, you know those people are out there and those are the people that we want to push put forward you're clearly from the north you can't hide it you wouldn't want to hide it then you've also got the working class thing going on how does that feed into what you're doing with with the magazine the hurdles that i faced as a northern person was really real and i don't just mean like excluding me from things or missing out on job opportunities but having my accent taken the mick out of you know that was when I went to uni, that was a real issue. And I actually ended up changing my accent a lot just to fit in. I became very resentful of the fact that I was Northern because it it just became a bit of a jerk. You know, and I'm from Hull. And obviously the South have a thing about Hull, I think. Hull's a bit of a jerk. And it shouldn't be. You know, there's a lot of talent in Hull. It's got, it rivals Shoreditch in terms of like how independent businesses thrive, their communities. When I came back after, you know, when I was pregnant with my son, I really felt that I'd neglected that side of me, that I'd tried to push it away when in fact I should have really embraced it. Um, And I do now. It's very much part of who I am. It's a weird thing, that idea that it is who you are. It defines you in, in, in a very kind of external sense that people, you know, they hear your accent or whatever. They know that you come from somewhere different. And yeah, I think there is a thing there that you either try and hide it or you just full on embrace it. What it's actually taught me is, and again, this is how it relates to parenting, is that it's like we try and push away those struggles and that we should get on with it. And no, we shouldn't just get on with it. We need to... These are why we fight for better policies in government, you know. Would you call it an angry magazine? No, not at all. I think people feel like it's an angry magazine. No, it's just informative. It's talking about these discussions that we don't see in typical consumer nationals. You know, how it affects parenting is that our conversations are real. And, you know, our whole tagline is making the attainable aspirational. And that is something that I feel really passionate about. I remember picking up a stylist magazine, one of my favourite magazines, even still to this day. I always That is something that inspires me. But the problem is I pick up stylist and I see a Prada handbag leading the fashion section. I live in the Yorkshire worlds. 
I, I can't afford a Prada handbag and I don't want to have one because it'll get wrecked by either my two dogs or my toddler. That is really toxic aspiration because it because it made me feel really bad about myself. Like, I can't afford that handbag. So that is something that still inspires me now. So how would you approach that kind of thing in parenting? You know, whether it's products or whether it's recommendations or whatever. What's your benchmark? It's a real balancing act. I would say it has to be affordable, but we also don't look at the primarks of this world in that we want it to be sustainable. We don't like supporting fast fashion. We try and be as green as possible, but it isn't always possible because I think there's also that conversation to be had around the working class can't afford to be green sometimes. One of the real issues we have in parenting, one of the main challenges is travel, like in terms of how we make editorial decisions. So a lot of things I get pitched are just so unaffordable, so out of reach, so environmentally not great, shall we say. How we have covered travel in the past has been around accessibility, about ensuring that if you are disabled, if you have children that are disabled, that you can go on a holiday and you are not it's not going to be a nightmare for you. You can actually get into your hotel. Things like that, that you just do not see covered again in consumer nationals unless it's a it's got a hook. And that and we are beyond that. Do you know what I mean? We are not about news hooks. We are about being beyond the headlines and getting to the real discussion points that are affecting your typical parent, basically. You're just about to finish issue four, right? Yes. When you started, how did you fund the startup? Uh, Parenting is is self-funded and reader-funded. So we tried a Kickstarter campaign and we didn't meet our first target. We actually got more in that first Kickstarter from backers that we did in our second one, but we didn't meet the target, so we didn't get the money. Oh, right, because if you don't meet a target, you get nothing, right? It was a real learning experience for me. So I ended up taking out a startup loan from the um, British Business Bank. Again, that was a learning curve. That was, you know, I took out the the money to get us started. Um, But when we went back for the second round of funding, we didn't get it um which was really disappointing so we are now in a situation where we are funded by readers it's funded by me and it's a massive scrambling act do you know what I mean and that's the only way I can describe it it's not juggling it's scrambling and it takes a lot of and I really want to shout out to my freelancers some of them are the most patient people and understanding people I've ever worked with they really get what parenting is trying to be about because you, you make a point of paying your freelancers. Yeah, and do you know what? I, I, I do have sleepless nights about paying my freelancers. Um, but I want to make sure not only are they paid, but they are paid NUJ average fees. And there has been really tough discussions had publicly about how, about, you know, we won't work for parenting because you cannot honour the 30-day business terms. I'm sat here waiting for two nationals to pay me over the 30 day times so in terms of your reader funding you sell subscriptions um do you sell single copies anywhere are you on any newsstands so we do sell single copies but we're not on newsstands uh we do stock with picks and ink um we have stocked at magazine brighton um but we are not on newsstands and i'll be really transparent about this 
it is another really hard if you are starting up and you have no if you have no investors yeah. behind you and you don't have big funds behind you it is really hard i mean if i want to distribute 200 copies in four locations in the country it's costing me 200 quid there's 200 quid yeah. i don't just have in my back pocket do you know what i mean yeah. and that's four locations so like if yeah. i wanted to go further we're a national like as far as i'm concerned if i wanted to go further you're looking at a lot more money so we are we are on our website um and we do try and distribute in other ways but it's again on a free basis which i'm finding can i really afford to do that it's it's a slow process and distribution is something that we are looking into to see how we can crack that so you've also got i mean people can people can buy the magazine digitally as well yeah yeah they can you're also doing some stuff i saw you had like subscription boxes where it was <laughs> socks and tea or coffee this has come a bit from when i worked in pr so i used to do the the retail pr on a global basis for cat gemini and so obviously I used to live, this was like five, six years ago, and obviously everything runs five years behind in the technology sector. And um, in terms of like what goes to, to press five years later, you know, will actually be a product. So um, they were talking about how, you know, it, we're going to move away from this convenience and move towards experience. And you know, everything's going to be built around the consumer experience rather than, and, it, and I don't just mean customer service, I'm talking like how someone experiences your product. That's how you're going to be able to sell your product to people. And it's, and it, and it is happening. If you think about like why people love Ikea so much, it's because they really, they really move into that Higa experience and minimalism and so when I was thinking about how people would consume magazines, you know, and I asked a lot of questions, I thought about my own experience, people really want to sit down and relax with a magazine. So, you know, you want your, your magazine reading to be healthy, you want it to be relaxing. Some people do it as like a form of meditation, I know I do. Um, and so I thought, well, okay, how can I help my readers do that? And so I thought I think back to what I do, and I'm a massive Higger person. I'm I'm very much like right blankets, being warm. My house is always twenty four degrees according to my thermostat. Um, because I live in the north, you know, it's always cool. You know, candles on, whatever, coffee, chocolates. You know, it's all, and so I thought, okay, what can I? Ha-? So I I thought I'll create a box. And it includes socks, really what... I mean, I'm wearing them at the moment. You know, I have to test all my products myself. Absolutely. Especially chocolate. (laughs) Of course. I mean, I could not give bad chocolate, you know, to my readers. So socks, chocolate, hot drink of choice. Because some people don't like coffee. Some people don't like tea. Some people don't want hot chocolate. So I give people a choice. Um, They get, obviously, a copy of the magazine, um, and it's all about creating that safe environment for you to have this relaxing experience with parenting. Um, with and as a parent, that is really important. You can't just you can't just sit down for five minutes and read a magazine. It doesn't happen. Um, and because sometimes you don't even get five minutes. You know, it has to be done 
in the evening when your child is in bed and you just go, oh, I can sit and relax and read yeah. and have a drink and, oh, sorry, I'm just, I'm getting carried away thinking about those moments. So from that point of view, it's really important for you to be in print, right? Yeah, it is. I'm very passionate about print. Very passionate. That's how I fell in love with journalism. You know, yeah. this was like, I was 15 years old. We had just got broadband, right? So you didn't really read stuff on the internet. You read it in print. And I'm still very passionate about that. I find digital online can be very toxic. And I think COVID pandemic times have really brought out that toxicity of the news. You're being told different information in the morning to the evening, right? At some days. And I think that that's really resonated with a lot of my readers. Like, they just want to read information, factual information, on the ground, in some respects, information. And so, for me, the best way to do that is print. And I think, you know, there are others out there trying to do something similar, slow journalism, whereas, you know, I I just call us lifestyle journalism. But... I think that there is a hunger for that healthy consumption of news. You've got two things going on, haven't you? You've got the that attainable reality side of things. And then you've got that proper magazine experience where it is sit back, relax, f- read something that's interesting, but also something that might make your life a little bit easier in the future. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I was. it's really interesting because, and this is why I always want to, keep taking it back to the working class and and I think this is why it's so important that I'm working class and and northern and and also disabled you know but we don't have a voice in a lot of media at the moment and it's but then as well there's this I think there's this ideology that if you're working class you don't read magazines you don't read journalism and someone the other day and I can't remember who it was you know, if they have, like, books in their house when they were working class, like, someone would walk into their house and they'd be like, oh, who's the reader? We, we all might be, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there's this ideology that working class people do not read. And it's like, yeah. what well, we do. Like, and, you know, and this is why, again, I'm really passionate about giving a voice to, the, to those people because they want to read them. They don't want to read about celebrities they want to read about them did you see that story about the woman that was having to downscale from a nanny to an au pair downscale it's the same yeah. it's the same <laughs> job no 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 she reckoned she was paying forty thousand pound a year for a nanny and she would only have to pay ten thousand pound a year for her au pairs you know at the end of the day an au pair and a nanny are the same thing, right? The difference is a wage. And also from from the point of view that you're coming from, they're both equally unattainable. And I'll be really upfront, I have had a nanny, but I've been a sing I'm a single parent. Um and that was very short lived, but it meant that I could get back into journalism quicker after having my son. But then it got to the point where it was unaffordable. So I had to not have a nanny anymore and I had to work from home when he was at home and that, again, was unattainable. It was short-lived, it was three months um, and then I had to stop working and, you know, being a parent and trying to work, I think, is one of the hardest things in the yeah, world. Yeah. That Again, I think it's being talked about a lot more but not 
I don't think it's being talked about from the perspective of the working class. I think it's being talked about by the middle class. And I think that's the... And, and this is why it's, again, so important that we have working class media because... So Grazia have this... Um, they have the juggle and they'll talk about like how much childcare is, right? And they'll be like, oh, I spend over a grand a month on childcare and, and, and I'm just like, for me, I can't afford that. You know what I mean? I can only my son can only afford to go to his nursery at the moment because I get the thirty free funded hours. Yeah. That's the only reason he can go. Beforehand he was going fifteen free hours. Like, I can't afford a grand a month. It's it's so again, unattainable. It's puts you into debt, right? Let's be frank about that. And um but the only time it's been it's mattered is when middle class people have found themselves in that situation and they've managed to do something about it because they've got the backing to get into the media to talk about it. Yeah. But that's not representative of the working class who have had to deal with these things for a lot longer. We ask all our guests for a media recommendation um, to give to our listeners. What would you recommend? I would recommend everybody go read The Unwritten which is a online um, outlet. It is run by Rachel. She's just won a Women in Journalism Back Toward of the Year. She is an amazing, amazing editor, amazing woman. Um, she's giving a voice to the disabled community. She has constantly fought for the disabled community throughout the pandemic, you know, bringing to light stories that you maybe wouldn't see in the mainstream media until... I don't know, it affects everybody. Um, and the disabled community, which I'm also obviously a part of, is really underrepresented in the media, is really underlooked. I think she is an outlet that people need to back, they need to read, and she also appears, her writers, and she's just a, a real inspiration. And I don't mean for this to be inspiration porn, she's just an amazing woman, you know? She's actually trying to fight to make real change in a community that really needs allies. So you must know by now, we have a daily newsletter. It goes out every working day of the week. We put in the four top stories as we see them to try and keep everyone appraised of what's going on in this crazy world of media. Go to our website, voices.media and sign up and we'll send it to you free for nothing every single working day of the week. But while that's free, if you do want to contribute to the running costs of Media Voices and to help us achieve some of our lofty ambitions, please do visit voices.media slash support where you can kick us a couple of quid, either as a one-off or regularly via our Ko-fi page. So please do visit, that's media.voices slash support, or if you'd rather just tell a friend about this podcast, because every little bit helps us grow. Uh the Publisher Podcast Awards shortlist is finally being released this Wednesday, 9th of Feb. Um, 12 p.m. GMT. We'll, we will be live tweeting the the finalists for each category. I I would say this, but <laughs> it's an incredibly good shortlist. Um, the reason we're a little bit later this year is because it's it's literally taken that long to get through the number of good entries we had. Like I, I do not envy the judges their job <laughs> this year. So yeah, if you want to find that out, um, follow us at PubPod Awards, uh, and we'll be live tweeting that on Wednesday. Um, or you'll get an email if you're on our email list publisherpodcastawards.com 
But until next week, when we'll be back again with another tour through all the news and views from the media world, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Bye-bye.